1: Thank you very much for that introduction and thank you for coming along this evening. Uh, You can see the title of the uh, presentation on the screen, Telling the Secrets, ASIO's official history uh, uh, and how we went about writing it. But let's set the scene. In November 1986, almost 28 years ago, a court case took place in Sydney in which the British government sought to prevent the publication of a book with a similar name to mine, namely Spycatcher, by a former MI5 officer, Peter Wright. At one stage in the court case, Sir Robert Armstrong, Secretary of the British Cabinet, admitted that Sir Dick White had been Chief of the British Secret Intelligence Service, MI6. Pressed by Wright's 32-year-old lawyer, Malcolm Turnbull, Armstrong acknowledged that MI6 existed when White was head of it, but he could not admit that MI6 had any prior or any subsequent existence. (laughs) Well, things have certainly changed since those times with regard to talking and writing about intelligence organisations. But the whole idea of publishing a history of an intelligence organisation based on its classified files seems counterintuitive. Intelligence services trade in secrecy. If they reveal their sources, the sources will dry up. If they reveal their techniques, their opponents will counter them. If the identities of officers are revealed, they will no longer be able to operate with the freedom that is necessary to achieve their tasks. Nevertheless, the appearance of histories of Britain's MI5 in 2009 and MI6 in 2010 seemed to set a precedent for an intelligence service publishing its own history. Beyond this precedent... There are, however, some good reasons for publishing a history of the Australian security intelligence organisation, ASIO. Through a series of historical and political circumstances, many myths or half-truths have flourished about the early decades of the organisation. Indeed, these myths have continued through to the present. Just six weeks ago, the author of a new book about ASIO, not mine, wrote a newspaper article that was syndicated around Australia. The author began with the statement that's on the screen that since its creation in 1949, ASIO Directors-General have not had their names published, let alone addressed the National Press Club. This, of course, is another myth. Rather, every Director-General since the first one, Geoffrey Reed, have had their names published. Charles Bry, the director-general from 1950 to 1970, had his picture splashed across the front pages of newspapers during the Petrov Royal Commission. One director-general, Harvey Barnett, wrote a book about his experiences. <laughs> Previous directors-general have addressed the press club and the decision to commission the official history of ASIO was announced by the then-director-general, Paul O'Sullivan, in a public address. The perpetuation of these myths have damaged the organisation's standing in the Australian community and this is unfortunate because ASIO does not exist for itself. Rather, ASIO exists to serve the nation. As a government instrumentality, it ultimately needs to justify its existence to the people of Australia and both sides of Parliament and to retain their confidence. My history, based on full and unrestricted access to ASIO's records, seeks to dispel many of the myths about it. And this particular volume explains why. ASIO was formed in 1949, it describes ASIO's role in the defection of the Petrovs in 1954, and ends with the expulsion of Ivan Skripov in 1963. It also describes many other activities that have never before been revealed. Now I chose the title of my volume, The Spy Catchers*, for three reasons. First, this is a history of the organisation. It's not about Soviet espionage, about the Communist Party in Australia, the Cold War or ASIO's effect on particular groups in the community, although all of these appear prominently in the story. The focus is on the organisation, how it dealt with certain challenges how it changed over time and how it achieved its successes and, of course, how at times there were shortcomings in its performance. The second second reason for the title is a reminder that ASIO was set up to catch spies. Evidence of Soviet espionage in the 1940s was damaging Australia's national security and its relationship with its allies. ASIO's prime role was counter-espionage to deal with the immediate problem and to counter the threat in the following years. Closely allied with this role, ASIO was charged with countering subversion. Now, in simple terms, subversion is an activity aimed at overthrowing or undermining the legitimately elected government by non-democratic means. In the 1950s, it was undertaken by certain members of the Communist Party, who rejected the accepted democratic process. Since ASIO had evidence that members of the Communist Party had engaged in espionage on behalf of the Soviet Union, it followed that a prudent precaution was to remove members of the Communist Party from jobs where they might have access to sensitive information about national security. Hence, ASIO became involved in vetting people for security clearance. But this major task was a byproduct of its prime role, namely counter-espionage. And the third reason for the title is that it reflects the fact that the book is about ASIO's people. ASIO's officers were and are normal, dedicated Australians. In the 1950s they believed that they were doing a job that was vital to the security of the nation and I wanted to bring bring them out of the shadows and recognise their efforts. And I'll elaborate on some of these issues later. But first I want to describe how the project began and how we went about our task. So in 2008, the Commonwealth Attorney-General approved the writing of an official history of ASIO and the organisation advertised for authors or institutions to research and write it. Now in this context, an official history is not the organisation's view of its history. and It's not its assessment of its own achievements. Rather, it is a history written by an independent historian for an organisation and based primarily on that organisation's own records. And several universities submitted tenders for the job. The ANU was successful, and the project began formally in August 2009. As the principal author, I was adamant about several matters – we would not accept any direction from ASIO as to how we would tell the story. And we would write the story as we saw it, based on ASIO's records. To achieve this aim, we needed complete and unrestricted access to all ASIO's records relevant to the period we were researching. And I'm pleased to say that ASIO kept its part of this bargain. We were not denied access to any file we asked for and we found files that ASIO did not even know that they had. (laughs) Furthermore, we were adamant that we needed to write the history at the ANU. We did not want to become part of ASIO and we needed to keep some academic distance from the organisation. But naturally there are some aspects of the story which we have not been able to publish for reasons of national security. But surprisingly, few of these matters have been deleted from this volume. Although it is illegal under the ASIO Act to release the names of ASIO officers, we were keen to identify as many of them as possible. And you can see on the screen there an extract from the ASIO uh, Act. See the last uh, line, penalty, imprisonment for one year. When we interviewed former ASIO officers we asked them to agree to have their names revealed and most did so. We were then able to seek permission from the Director-General of Security to release their names. Furthermore, we wanted to be sure that if we encountered any problem, we could appeal to some semi-outside body. ASIO therefore established a History Advisory Committee. It was chaired by the Director-General and included one of his deputies. You can see him or her there. (laughs) But it also included... Two outsiders, Professor Jeff Gallop, a former Labor Premier of Western Australia, and Jim Carlton, a former Minister in the Fraser Coalition Government. The committee did not seek to give any direction to the writing of the history, but it did provide some valuable advice. We believe that it was important to engage with the views and arguments about ASIO that have appeared in books and articles over the past three decades including many dealing with ASIO's treatment of individuals or groups in the community. But on the other hand, conscious that our task was to tell the story of the organisation, I decided that rather than beginning with the files of individuals, I should start with examining ASIO's policy files so that we had a broad picture of the organisation's activities. And I found a more complex and multifaceted story than was previously recognised while some widely published issues seemed far less important when viewed from within ASIO. For example, whereas some journal articles and books had suggested that ASIO's surveillance of writers and artists required closer examination, I found that it was just a relatively small part of ASIO's activities. I just did not have the space to deal with such issues in any depth. To pick another example, I could not cover in any great depth the important subject of ASIO's involvement with alleged Nazi war criminals in Australia, a subject already covered in exhaustive detail by Mark Arons. But primarily this history is based on ASIO's official records and for this volume alone we have accessed 1,900 files and we need to remember that when we accessed a file there might be several parts, even up to 10 parts, of each file. That's what we got from ASIO. But we also got ASIO's records and other departmental records from the National Archives. To ensure that the history was authoritative as possible, we have sought to provide a footnote for every fact or incident described in the text. ASIO file numbers appeared in every relevant footnote of the penultimate draft of the history. Because its record system is still in use, ASIO decided that its file numbers should not appear in the final published version. The project could not have been undertaken, let alone completed, without the outstanding work of our research officer, Dr. Rhys Crawley. He followed tenuous leads to find files which, as I've mentioned earlier, ASIO staff barely knew existed. He's also the author of the appendix in the volume and he was capably assisted by our research assistant, Lisa McKibben. The Spy Catchers is the first of a three-volume series and to assist with the writing task, in February 2011, we were joined by Dr John Blaxland, who had previously served as an intelligence officer in the Australian Army. And the series is shown there on the screen. Dr Blaxland is the author of Volume 2, and he and Dr Crawley are writing Volume 3. It goes up to 1989, as you can see, which is effectively the end of the Cold War. And I'm pleased to report that Volume 2 has been completed and is presently being cleared by ASIO. We hope that it can go to the publisher later this year. We expect to have a draft of Volume 3 completed by February 2015, which is nominally the end date of the project. It too will need to be cleared for publication. I now want to turn to some of the themes of the book. And the first theme is the importance of signals intelligence. In the mid and late 1940s, American and British cryptanalysts deciphered the encrypted cabled messages between the headquarters of the Soviet Intelligence Service, the KGB, and its resident intelligence officers in embassies around the world. This Venona intelligence, as it was known, revealed the existence of a spy ring in Australia, a Soviet spy ring, and ASIO was then set up to try to catch the spies. The Venona program was extremely secret and over the succeeding years ASIO spent much effort in trying to protect knowledge of Venona's existence. Another major theme is the role of Britain's security service, MI5, in establishing and fostering ASIO in 1949. The first heads of ASIO were determined to ensure that it became an independent Australian security service, even though they relied heavily on advice from MI5. Soon, ASIO learned to stand on its own feet. Cooperation with MI5 remained important, but... ASIO established links with other foreign security services as well. And my volume describes how, at first, ASIO relied on on MI5 and then how it developed its own worldwide network of contacts. It's impossible to understand the early history of ASIO without appreciating the political and social climate of the early Cold War period. Australians who had lived through the Second World War when the threat of invasion seemed frighteningly real, were determined to confront and defeat what they perceived as a new and equally dangerous threat. Thus in the nineteen fifties, with the Cold War between the Communist Bloc and the West at its height, ASIO's officers saw themselves as frontline warriors in a war against a twofold enemy, the Soviet Union and the Communist Party of Australia, the CPA. With regard to the Soviet Union, ASIO saw its main task as ensuring that the Soviet intelligence officers operating under diplomatic cover were unable to conduct espionage in Australia. Now, remember that ASIO was set up to catch the spies who had been revealed by the Venona program and that most of them were members of the CPA. So, as for the CPA, ASIO first had to ensure that its members and sympathisers were excluded from positions where they might have access to sensitive information. ASIO therefore needed to establish a comprehensive list of CPA members and also to develop procedures for vetting people who might need access to sensitive information. So vetting became a major ASIO preoccupation. But next, ASIO needed to deal with the threat of subversion. ASIO and the government believed that the CPA on behalf of the Soviet Union was engaged in a concerted campaign to undermine the public's confidence in the Australian democratic system and ultimately to overthrow it. Based on the statements of CPO officials, this was a reasonable assessment, although some would challenge whether the CPA's capability would ever be likely to match this intent. The coalition government, led by the Prime Minister, Robert Menzies, hoped to deal with this threat through legislative means, such as banning the CPA, but this did not prove possible. But meanwhile, ASIO sought through a range of measures, including covert surveillance and infiltration, to gain a comprehensive picture of the CPA's membership and activities. It also focused on front organisations, that is organisations that have been covertly set up by the CPA or were controlled by the CPA. The manner in which ASIO allegedly spied on innocent Australians and produced voluminous dossiers on them to find out if they were CPA members or sympathisers is an enduring theme in ASIO's history and the focus of much criticism of the organisation. While many ASIO officers believed that the CPA posed a threat to Australia, they were in fact responding to a strong direction from the government. The the issue raises the question of whether ASIO was politically biased in favour of the coalition, conservative coalition government. And, of course, that was in power from December 1949 right through to December 1972. As far as ASIO officers were concerned, all communists and fellow travellers were tarred with the same brush and were legitimate surveillance targets. With the advantage of hindsight, the book examines whether ASIO's priorities were indeed right. Some of the moral dilemmas faced by ASIO officers were caused by the fact that for much of the period covered by my book, ASIO operated without legislative cover. When ASIO was established, Prime Minister Ben Chifley issued the new Director-General of Security, Justice Geoffrey Reed, with a charter in which he was charged with the defence of the Commonwealth from external and internal dangers arising from attempts at espionage and sabotage or from actions of persons and organisations which may be subversive of the security of the Commonwealth. Reid was not told how he was to do this, except he needed to be satisfied that an important public interest bearing on the defence of the Commonwealth was at stake. So when Reid decided he needed to intercept the telephone conversations of selected individuals, Chifley verbally approved the phone taps. There was no written approval. When Charles Spry succeeded Reid in July 1950, he received a similar charter and continued the phone taps. Nonetheless, Reid and Spry understood clearly that ASIO's role was to collect intelligence and advise the government. ASIO had no executive function. That is, unlike the police, it could not apprehend or arrest people. In the meantime, ASIO's most noteworthy activity was the successful management of the defection of Soviet intelligence officer Vladimir Petrov and his wife Evdokia in April 1954. As Sir Charles Spry commented... The defection gave ASIO world-class standing among the democratic world intelligence communities. It strengthened immensely our liaison with them. The story of the ensuing Royal Commission on Espionage, however, is much more complex, and its outcome had long-term implications for Australia and for ASIO. The imprudent response by the Leader of the Opposition, Dr Bert Ebbett, exacerbated tensions in the Australian Labor Party, the ALP, which contributed to the split of the party and the formation of the Democratic Labor Party, the DLP. In subsequent federal elections, the DLP directed its preferences away from the ALP and thereby kept the coalition in power for the next 17 years. The misfortune for ASIO was that evett accused it of manufacturing the Petrov defection to assist the election of the Menzies coalition government and he even alleged that ASIO officers falsified documents in order to link his staff with Soviet espionage. These intemperate and untrue charges by Evert poisoned the relationship between ASIO and the ALP for the next two decades. Many people in the community accepted the ALP's assertions about ASIO and the organisation's reputation was damaged. Some people still believe these false assertions. With ASIO under attack from the alternative government, Spry was concerned about the survival of his organisation. And as a result of his initiative, in December 1956, the government passed the ASIO Act 1956, which for the first time publicly specified the functions of the organisation. In 1960, the government amended the Crimes Act to spell out what was meant by treason, treachery and sabotage and also that year the government passed the Telephonic Communications Interception Act which specified the conditions under which ASIO could intercept telephone conversations. And these acts helped articulate ASIO's lawful parameters. The legislative cover for many of ASIO's activities, however, still remained unclear. For example, in the late 1950s ASIO carried out disruptive spoiling operations against the CPA. ASIO officers, agents or contacts wrote articles exposing CPA activities for publication in newspapers and magazines. These actions did not seem to fit functions specified in the ASIO Act. I now want to give a few glimpses of our history as it appears in the first volume. ASIO's first task when it was established in 1949 was to investigate a Soviet spy ring that had been identified by the Venona program. And you recall that this program involved the intercept and deciphering of communications of the Soviet Intelligence Service, that is the KGB. The details of this spying were first described in detail in a 1998 book called Breaking the Codes, which I co-authored with my ANU colleague, Professor Desmond Ball. ASIO simply called this investigation task the case. The Soviets used cover names to describe their officers and the Australians who were assisting them. The central figure was an official of the Australian Communist Party, Wally Clayton, who was given the cover name Clod. And you can see him there in the the centre of the, uh, the, the web. Two other important personalities were Ian Milner, cover name Burr, and Jim Hill, cover name Tourist. They worked in the Department of External Affairs, now the Department of Foreign Affairs. They gave classified information to Clayton, who passed it to Semyon Makarov. You can see, see him out there. He was the KGB resident in the Soviet embassy and to Fedor Notov, the task correspondent, who also passed it to the Soviet embassy. Another key personality was Frances Burney, cover name Sestra. She worked in the office of the Minister for External Affairs, none other than Doc Ebbett, and passed the information to Clayton. Now, this story has been previously told, but I've been able to add some more detail. The experience of Len Healig, an ASIO officer who kept watch over Clayton's house at Mossman in Sydney, gives some idea of the conditions endured by those conducting surveillance, as well as ASIO's operating methods at that time. Healig, aged 28, had served in the Army during the Second World War, and he joined ASIO's Brisbane office in June 1949. The following month he was brought to Sydney and accommodated in a boarding house three kilometres from Clayton's residence in Mossman. He was instructed to observe the house from 6.30am until all lights were extinguished, which invariably was never before 1am. If Heerling observed Clayton or any of his visitors leaving by vehicle, he was to phone Bob Wake, the deputy head of ASIO, who was running the case. And Wake would arrange to have Clayton's car followed as it crossed Sydney Harbour Bridge. But the only house su- with a suitable vantage point, the for- only place with a suitable vantage point from which to observe Clayton's house, was a rocky outcrop jutting out into the harbour at the bottom of Clayton's Street. So Healy obtained a fishing line and he dangled it in the water. And this was pleasant enough in fine weather, but in bleak rainy weather in midwinter, it was a little incongruous. At night and in poor light conditions, Hillig moved to a bus shelter near Clayton's house. But this was during the height of the 1949 coal strike and parts of Sydney were frequently blacked out. With an upsurge in crime, the police stepped up their patrols and at times Hillig had to explain that he was waiting for his girlfriend. (laughs) Because Hillig was from Brisbane, he should have been paid by that office. But this was not possible because he was in Sydney. And, of course, there was no electronic transfer of funds in those days. So when he ran out of money, he would phone Bob Wake. An old Morris car would drive past and Wake would throw out a rolled-up newspaper (laughs) which Healig would retrieve and hopefully find inside his fortnightly pay packet. (laughs) Now, meals were another problem. There were no eating houses in the area. and In any case, no one to relieve him. So Helig's diet consisted of Devon sausages and packets of potato crisps, which was about all he could obtain from the only shop in the area. And after nearly five weeks on this enforced diet, combined with an average of three hours sleep per night, and a touch of pleurisy due to continually having wet clothing, Helig, who had prided himself on being fairly fit, went back to Brisbane ten uh, kilograms lighter. He arrived home feeling relieved that the observation stint was over. But that evening his phone rang. It was Wake, instructing him to return to Sydney to commence surveillance of Fedor Nossov. Now the episode shows the devotion of ASIO officers in trying to complete tasks that they, led, they were led to believe were vitally important to the national security. Len Healig went on to a long and distinguished career in ASIO. At one stage he helped look after the Petrobs when they were in the safe house during the Royal Commission on Espionage. Now in the book I spent a bit of time explaining how ASIO recruited and ran its agents who reported on the activities on the Communist Party and the front organisations. Now ASIO agents are not the same as ASIO officers. ASIO officers are full-time employees of the organisation. By contrast, ASIO agents work in the community at their day jobs, but under the direction of ASIO they report on what they have seen or heard. The names of ASIO agents are never revealed. However, some have become known, usually because they've revealed the work themselves. And one well-known ASIO agent was Michael Biliguski, who gained the trust of Vladimir Petrov and persuaded him to defect. A lesser-known agent is Anne Neill, who worked as a typist for Elliot Johnston, Secretary of the South Australian Peace Council. He was also a member of the Central Committee and the South Australian State Committee of the Communist Party. Anne Neill became a secret member of the Communist Party and passed a mass of reports and copies of documents to her ASIO handler. In December 1952 she attended the Third World Peace Congress in Vienna and then took up an invitation to return via Moscow and Peking. According to ASIO legend, she became the first Allied agent to be invited behind the Iron Curtain. She resigned from the Communist Party in 1958 and went public about her role as a spy in December 1961. The story of the expulsion of the Soviet diplomat and intelligence officer Ivan Skripov in February 1963 is reasonably well known. But we've been able to provide some more details. Skripal recruited a British-born woman, Kay Marshall, and groomed her to deliver messages to illegal Soviet agents. But actually, she was an ASIO double agent. One of ASIO's greatest challenges was trying to identify Soviet illegal agents. Illegal illegal agents had no apparent connection with their home country or its embassy, and they frequently used a false identity. After Petrov defected in 1954, the Soviets closed their embassy in Canberra. ASIO assumed that the Soviets had left illegal agents to operate in Australia. The challenge was to try to identify them. So ASIO focused on a Polish-born businessman, Chaim Bresniak, He'd been mentioned in the Venona intercepts and his name appeared in the notebook brought out of the Soviet embassy by Petrov. So ASIO monitored Brezhnev's telephone and they found that he was in almost daily contact with Alan Dalziel, the long-serving private secretary of the leader of the opposition, Dr. Evatt. Dalziel had a close relationship with a Russian-born woman by the name of Lydia Janovska who had been friendly with Petrov and the ASIO agent Bieloguski. Janoska had trained as an intelligence officer and had worked for the Russian intelligence service in Czechoslovakia and Germany before migrating to Australia. ASIO then discovered even more startling information. Dowzil had established a close relationship with Bob Wake, who, as I mentioned earlier, had been the deputy head of ASIO before Charles Spry had dismissed him in 1950. A small group that included Brezniak, Dalziel, Wake and Janovska were meeting regularly in Evett's offices in Sydney where they were planning ways to embarrass ASIO. Previous accounts, uh, either in books or on TV, have suggested that ASIO was watching Bob Wake because it had some sort of long-standing vendetta against him. But Wake was advising Evert that the Russians had directed Petrov to defect to mislead ASIO. Our research has shown that the whole initiative for what became known as Operation Boomerang came from ASIO's focus initially on Brezhnev. Operation Boomerang strengthened ASIO's concerns about Abbott's attitude towards security issues. In one of her interviews, Janowska said that Wake hoped that after Abbott became Prime Minister, he, Wake, would be restored to his position in ASIO. Spry, spry, the head of ASIO, kept the Prime Minister, Robert Menzies, informed about the progress of Operation Boomerang. Two days before the federal election in November 1958, which Menzies feared he might lose, Menzies arranged for two complete copies of the Petrov papers to be given to Britain, one each for MI5 and MI6. Copies were also given to the Americans. Menzies wanted to preserve the documents because of fears what whatever it might do if he became Prime Minister. Menzies need not have worried. He won the election. My final glimpse of the ASIO story is about the bugging of the headquarters of the Victorian branch of the Communist Party uh, um, and the target was the office of Ted Hill, secretary of the Victorian branch of the CPA. Ted Hill was the brother of Jim Hill who, according to the Venona Intercepts, had passed external affairs documents to the Soviet Union in 1945-1946. Ted Hill's office was on the ninth floor of a building in Elizabeth Street, Melbourne. Between November 1952 and August 1953, ASIO officers bugged Hill's office with a microphone and also entered his office to photograph documents and to check the microphone. ASIO temporarily halted the operation when CPA officials became more security conscious. In October 1956, ASIO tried another approach and they leased an office on the eighth floor, just below the CPA premises, to establish a listening post and ASIO officers then installed another microphone in Hill's office. The cable from the microphone was dropped down the wall cavity and connected to the equipment in the listening post. The technicians ensured that the length of the cable from the microphone was twice the length necessary to reach the eighth floor, so that if it was discovered, it would give the impression that it led down to the seventh floor. Two ASIO officers, a husband and wife team who had recently arrived from England and were therefore not known in Melbourne, opened a dummy market research business on the eighth floor. The husband operated primarily as the front man for the firm while his wife listened to the conversations in Hill's office and produced reports from the raw product. The intelligence gained by this operation was of very high quality, but ASIO succumbed to the temptation to use it in a spoiler-type operation. A significant communist communist crisis developed in mid-1958 over the expulsion of a well-known member who was a university lecturer and ASIO floated the story to the Melbourne Herald newspaper. After an investigation among party members, Hill concluded that few people knew about the events described, so he enlisted the assistance of the CPA's technician, Harry Stanistreet, who was actually employed by the Postmaster General's Department, now Telstra. Stanistreet successfully located the microphone on the 20th of January 1959. The ASIO officer in the floor below was listening to the proceedings above and when the line went dead, she had the presence of mind to disconnect the cable attached to the audio equipment and to drop the cable down the wall cavity. Stannis Street pulled up the cable, measured it, calculated that the listening post was two floors down and went down to the seventh floor where a firm of investigators happened to be located and accused them of being connected with ASIO. LAUGHTER ASIO maintained the bogus research firm for a couple of months before quietly closing it. The Communist Party publicised the incident widely, naming the firm of investigators in its newspaper Tribune. The Communist Party's state president also wrote to the Prime Minister Menzies, protesting at the installation of a microphone in their offices and demanding that those responsible be punished and ASIO be disbanded. Spry advised Menzies that the microphone had been installed because ASIO had every reason to believe that Edward Fowler Hill, in whose room it was discovered, was engaged in work for the illegal apparatus of the Communist Party of Australia and probably in espionage on behalf of the Soviet Union. No evidence was ever produced to prove this latter claim. Well, these are just a few of the glimpses of the stories in our book. Many of the stories have never been told before. However, I accept that some of the stories in the book have previously appeared in other books and articles, and that was always going to be inevitable. But at least readers can be confident that what we have told is correct as far as ASIO's records are correct. We hope you enjoyed this
0: talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine. ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.